Welcome to the Mamalode Podcast. Mamalode is America's best parenting magazine in print, online, at live events, and now on podcasts. I'm Leland Buck, Digital Director at Mamalode, and this is a special episode of the podcast to be released on December 24th, both Christmas Eve and the first night of Hanukkah this year. Our guest is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, parent, author, and rabbi from Chicago, Illinois. Rabbi Ruttenberg is the author of the 2016 book, Nurture the Wow, Finding Spirituality in the Frustration, Boredom, Tears, Poop, Desperation, Wonder, and Radical Amazement of Parenting from Flatiron Books, as well as Surprised by God, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Religion. She has edited numerous books, including The Passionate Torah, Sex and Judaism, and Yentl's Revenge, The Next Wave of Jewish Feminism. She has been profiled in a broad selection of major publications, including Newsweek, The Atlantic, Haaretz, and the Chicago Tribune. Her writing is insightful, introspective, and always inspiring. It is my pleasure to have her on the Mamalode podcast. Here is Rabbi Ruttenberg reading a selection from Nurture the Wow. One day, in the early 1950s, Anne Morrow Lindbergh took herself on vacation. It was a radical act. She was the mother of five, right in the thick of their chaotic, growing years. She was responsible for their care, for the household, and embedded in a myriad of community relationships that came with their own obligations. It was during a time when the cultural presumption that mothers weren't supposed to leave their children was awfully strong. And yet, she left. Lindbergh settled down for a brief stay on Florida's Captiva Island. She walked along the shore. She watched the birds. She rode her bike around the island. She baked biscuits and swam and wrote down a series of musings as they came to her on love and family and mothering and solitude and contemplation. Gift from the Sea was published in 1955 and it became a major bestseller. What I find startling, though, is not that her writing is wise, but that it's still very current on so many levels. For example, as she muses on her new awareness, both painful and humorous, about why the saints were rarely married women, she writes that she is convinced that it has nothing to do with chastity. It has to do primarily with distractions. The bearing, rearing, feeding, and educating of children the running of a house with its thousand details, human relationships with their myriad pulls. Women's normal occupations in general run counter to the creative life or contemplative life or saintly life. The problem is not merely one of women in career, women in the home, women in independence. It is more basically how to remain whole in the midst of the distractions of life, how to remain balanced, how to remain strong. Every couple of years, Time or The Atlantic or The New York Times runs a think piece on whether or not women can have it all. It all, of course, is defined as family, though not every woman wants that, and career, though not every woman wants that either. Though the discourse is expanding little by little in terms of the kinds of options that are available and socially acceptable for mothers, there still seem to be two distinct gears— working in professional engagements or working at home, focusing on kids and their many needs. Many parents of whatever gender these days do both of these things in various ratios at various times in their lives or at certain hours in their day. But sitting on the beach, alone, 
Staring at the birds? Not so much. If anything, the balancing act that many of us do between work and home has intensified as working motherhood has become more common. As smartphones pull us to the office or elsewhere, even from the park, as it's become the norm for children to be enrolled in a thousand activities a day, in light of the fact that parents are typically much more hands-on now than they have been in previous generations. We have at least as much in front of us as Lindbergh did, if not more. The problem of distraction isn't even just about feeling as though there's no time for quieter contemplation either. Even when we're focused entirely on caring for our kids, a fundamental part of that work requires us to slice our attention in several different directions. The philosopher Sarah Ruddock talks about vigilance, a sense of being on the lookout for dangers and problems as part of the parental protection. Is the toddler about to jump off the steep edge of the jungle gym? Who's that person approaching? Do they seem safe? Is that broken glass on the ground? Is it about to start pouring rain? For most of us, this sense of vigilance is like an app running in the background, constantly worrying. We're just hanging out at the park, doing what we do, talking and laughing and playing, but some piece of us is constantly surveying the situation to make sure that nothing is awry. The vigilance is there, a necessary distraction, the antithesis of the relaxed state the person must be in if they are able to turn inward for spiritual or creative contemplation. Of course, there aren't just psychic or psychological challenges in the tension between our own needs and those of our kids. There are a lot of straight-up logistical issues, too, like the toddler who goes ballistic when we try to take a shower in the morning or who runs after us sobbing to keep us from leaving for work, for an evening meeting, or for the gym. So then what? Do we never take a shower? Do we just stop caring for ourselves entirely so that we can be available at all times in every respect? Is that even what's best for our kids? The person that my children would get when I don't take care of myself, when I'm hungry or resentful or low on solitude or whatever else, that isn't the mother that I want to be for them. I make myself into that person by being mindful of my own needs. It's a gift for them. They want a happy mom who can show up for them. That can look like a, a lot of things. Sometimes it's about keeping yourself fed and boldly claiming your shower, even if your toddler is bereft and shrieking. Sometimes it might be about taking time for the gym or a two-hour bike ride or in a journal or paint or even a few days away at the beach all by yourself. Sometimes it's about being brave enough to just plunge through your prayer or meditation practice, even when the kids and their infinite needs are filling up the room. We need to carve for ourselves pockets and corners of life without distraction and regard our own self-care as a legitimate obligation. Our basic well-being alone is reason enough. But it's also true that when we do so, we become more capable, available parents to our children, and we model something exquisitely valuable for them. And one can only imagine that they will grow up in a world with even more noise and competing demands than the one in which we now live. When we make space for focus and self-care, we give them the tools to do that for themselves. They learn so much from just watching us. When we set aside time to prioritize our own needs, even, or especially, the need to watch the birds for an hour a week or for a week each year, we make of ourselves mothers. We make of ourselves fathers. We make of ourselves human beings. And we show our kids that they can do that, too.
Thank you. That was wonderful. Let me ask you, how do you think parents can be more attentive to their own needs without being any less attentive to the needs of their children? And how might they avoid feelings of guilt when they do make time for themselves? There's this phenomenon wherein uh, there's a, the, the parenting perfectionism isn't totally new, but in some ways it's very new. In the Victorian era, they began, this is where we started to really see this concept known as, as the angel in the house. So it was this woman who was pure. She was also white and wealthy. And needless to say, women with less money or women of color were not ever really considered angels in the house. They were these sort of moral, pure keepers of the hearth. Um, they were cast as these you know, kind of like perfect stay-at-home mom types. Um, and it was really developed as a response to urbanization. Women had started to move into the cities and uh, exhibit a little more social freedom, and that freaked people out. And so this, this trope was uh, claimed as an ideal, as a way to try to keep people keep women in the home and to make sure that they had enough on their plate in terms of the homemaking to not demand things out in the world. Um, and we've seen the thread go pretty much, you know, all the way through. And, you know, it stretches back into history. We see all sorts of things about the, the woman of valor, the woman who's working constantly and giving out and giving out and giving out and, you know, doesn't even sleep for a moment and takes care of everybody. Um... None of that has anything to do with what the children actually need, right? What the children need and what we think is supposed to be some idealized version of parenthood aren't necessarily uh, overlapping. I mean, you know, you can have a, a Pinterest perfect birthday party for your one-year-old with, you know, hours of handcrafted things and the, you know, perfect cake and all of that. And if that gives you joy to do that, that's awesome. And that's a fabulous excuse. And your one-year-old doesn't actually care. Your one-year-old's going to be really excited if you give them, you know, a spoon <laughs> from the drawer. Like That's a great way to celebrate a day. Um, they don't know what a birthday is. So I think parents need to remember how to put this stuff in perspective. If we don't fill ourselves up, if we don't do the things that we need in order to really nourish ourselves, be full and present uh, and not exhausted and resentful and grumpy when we're with our children, if we're doing something out of guilt instead of out of um, love and joy, our kids are going to sense it and they're going to know it. And so it's not good for us and it's not good for them. So when we do the work of self-care, which is everything from like, go claim your shower, <laughs> like go take a shower. It's your, your toddler will live for the 20 seconds that they, you know, they, they have to deal with the door being slammed in their face, right? To go take a couple days to, whether it's for work or whether it's to visit a friend or whether it's whatever. Um, if we don't do the things that, that nourish us, then we're not going to be of any use to them. We're not going to be valuable in any way to our kids if... Um, 
if we're resentful, if we're not totally present because we're feeling like we're stretched past our limit. And when we do the things that take care of us, then our par- our children get to see that taking care of yourself, that loving yourself is a value. Um, and that's an important thing that we need to teach our kids as well. A lot of your writing, particularly um, in your most recent book, uh, talks about spiritual benefits and impacts of parenting or realized through parenting. Tell us a little bit about your experience as a mother and as a spiritual leader and guide and how that journey has opened you to new ways of thinking about parenting and spirituality and particularly how how that can empower people and make it easier for people. So my first kid was born (laughs) just about exactly nine months after I was ordained as a rabbi. That was probably quite a week. Um... And I had had, you know, a long time investing in my uh, my spiritual life up until then, but it had been spiritual life as defined by the guys in my tradition who were writing books and not really thinking about the messy experience of life with little kids um, so much. So, for example... Very early on, I said, okay, well, what Jewish law says during this part of the liturgy, you're not supposed to stop and interrupt what you're saying for anything. If a snake is crawling up your leg, don't stop. Keep going. Okay, great. So what does Jewish law say if you've got a kid and they're either being fussy and you're in a communal situation and they're going to bother other people's prayer or you're by yourself and your kid, what, just bonks themselves and needs something, um, you know, not life or death, but there's, there are other kinds of needs. What do you do? And I went looking, and Jewish law was like, well, you should indicate without speaking to your child that they should stop being fussy. It's like, okay. <laughs> Whoever wrote this was not in charge of little kids. And so I had to, you know, sort of a reckoning for me to find some, some porousness and to realize that my prayer can look like that. And it can also have more flow in it, that there are times and places for spontaneous prayer, um, that my prayers can be my lullabies and my lullabies can be my prayers. And that uh, spirituality, we also often think of it as this thing. I'm alone. I'm having this powerful connection with the divine, the transcendent. I'm meditating by myself. I'm praying by myself. Even if you're in a room with other people, it's sort of like your experience. And to realize that my spiritual and even mystical experience could happen with and through my children just as much as it could happen in other ways. Um, and that I didn't need to disconnect this powerful source of love from my, you know, moments of, of spiritual connection. That was, you know, it's a big, uh, big shift for me. And I mean, there are these two rooms, right? There's the, the rooms of the richness and the love and the powerful power of, um, parenting and, and experience parents experience. And there's this other room with the riches of spiritual traditions that don't always take in mind those sort of messy day to day stuff of raising little kids. And what Nurture the Wow really tried to do was to build a bridge between these things. Because when Martin Buber talks about um, I thou relationships, like it was, he was, his theology was not talking about three-year-olds, but it's really useful when you're talking about three-year-olds. But you need to build a bridge. And there are also things that parents' experience of 
love and and selfhood and patience and frustration and all of that can really teach and inform uh, our traditions as well. Tell us a little bit about the value of community. <laughs> I, I, I so far have not been able to find a legitimate source for uh, the so-called African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, um, the title of Hillary Clinton's um, book from a few years back. But there are a bunch of different African proverbs from different communities that I've found that say basically the same thing, and it's true. Right? It's... I don't think we were ever meant to to raise families in these isolated little structures of, you know, a parent or two and children and you're in your own house and you never interact with other people. I mean, we need as much love and as many different kinds of support and perspectives and sustenance and connection as possible. And sometimes that's just having additional people who love your kid and who know them in different ways and that your kid can connect to in different ways. And sometimes it's having people who will, you know, pick up your kid from camp if you're stranded and you can't get there. And sometimes it's about, um, you know, the people who are going to come over and bring either food or hugs or both if there's a major crisis happening. Um you know, there's there's plenty of data that indicates that when children grow in, grow up in not just in sort of isolated family units, but in embedded in a larger community, sort of like the more people they count as their people, the happier they are growing up. I think it's true of all of us. Who our community is, whether it's religious community or whether it's the people from roller derby or the crafting group or the gamers or the folks from the office or the neighborhood. You know, I think matters less than the fact that you have you have your people. Thank you. You have uh, one more passage to read from your book, Nurture the Wow. Let, let's go out on that. Everything is terrible. Nothing can possibly ever be right. I gave my son Yonatan more tomatoes, but his brother Sheer wants more tomatoes too. Even though he has tomatoes on his plate. Sheer is howling, hysterical. He needs more tomatoes. He doesn't want these. No, he wants those. He wants cottage cheese. But wait, actually, no, he doesn't. I'm exasperated. I'm annoyed. I'm irritated. Just an hour ago, Sheer had been so sweet and charming during his annual physical. He was delighted to tell his doctor that he had just turned three, that he could jump up and down, that he was wearing big boy underpants now. He gamely weathered the eye exam, was brave about the othoscope even though it hurt his ear, and even braver when the doc needed to check the health of his testes even though he really didn't like that. Regardless, he obediently did all of the things asked of him, was gleeful in picking out his Mickey Mouse sticker, cheerful and patient when we had to wait on the nurse for something. Now it's dinner time, and I'm holding what is ostensibly the same child, but he's beside himself, crying, screaming, demon-possessed. He makes a move to throw his plate on the ground, and when I manage to intercept him, he gets even more frenzied. Oh, come on, I thank to myself. Where did that adorable, engaging, puppy-like kid go? Why won't you just listen to reason? But then I remember that he's probably so upset now precisely because he was so calm earlier. It was hard to get poked and prodded, and though he had held it together there, maybe he needs to fall apart now. As soon as this thought hits me, I am flooded by that feeling. 
the same one I've been feeling on a regular basis for six years since Yonatan was born. It's a thick compassion, a sense of being stretched to my limit and finding, against all odds, more love available. It's the feeling that keeps me going through the exhausting nights and the willful disregard for our rules and basic respect. It's the feeling that helps me interpret the pouncing on my head and toppling me backwards as joyful and fun. It's the feeling that allows me to read Captain Underpants or Moo Ba La 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 another time and another time and another time after that. It's the feeling that enables me to see them as the fragile, vulnerable, resilient, exquisite little creatures that they are. It's a feeling that doesn't come from within me as much as it flows through me from someplace else. Part of me wants sure to just stop and calm down and let me eat my dinner like the civilized human being I used to be before kids. But this little boy of mine is unnerved by a hard afternoon and he wants some comfort as he expresses this. And at that moment, the most important thing for me is to get that feeling, the sweetness, the grace to him, to be the conduit that lets it flow onto him, into him, through him. So I hold him and I pet him and I whisper into his ear that it's going to be okay and that he can cry until he didn't need to anymore. And once I'm able to offer him compassion, after first rediscovering the well of love in myself, it doesn't take him very long to calm down. Not very long at all. Somewhere in my first year or two of parenthood, it dawned on me, through the haze of fatigue, laundry, diapers and tantrums, Yonatan's and my both, that I actually had access to a treasure trove of wisdom that could help me do the exhausting, frustrating, challenging work of loving and raising my kid. It took me a while to realize it, though, because how I was changing as a mom seemed to be taking me away from my tradition's ideas about what spiritual practice is supposed to be. It had been panic-inducing for a while there, honestly, feeling like I was on a boat that was drifting slowly from the island on which I'd made my home for almost 15 years. And yet, when I looked more closely, I realized that the treasures that had sustained me for so long could nourish me through this new, hard, bewildering thing. In fact, the Jewish tradition, as well as other traditions that I'd studied, even if I didn't live as intimately with them, can actually illuminate the work of parenting. The love, the drudgery, the exasperation, all of it. This fact isn't necessarily intuitive, though, because let's face it, thousands of years of books on what spiritual practice is supposed to be in pretty much every tradition have been written by men, mostly talking to other men. These guys were, by and large, not engaged in the intimate care of small children. Somewhere else, far from the monastery or house of study, other people, women, mothers, were wrangling tantrumy toddlers and explaining to six-year-olds that they really did have to eat what was on their plate. At least, I assume that that's what was happening, but again, for most of history, the people who were raising children weren't writing books, so we don't totally know. Raising kids forces us into a lot of different emotions, processes, skills, encounters with the world and ourselves, to say nothing of the variety of ways in which we relate to the tiny people in front of us. When we care for our children, we can go so far down into love that we might find infinity on the other side. We can use the boring and the hard moments to pop us open. 
We can find new means of experiencing our bodies. We can open the doors of perception in immersive play and even find within the depth and intensity of these bonds something akin to the mystic. We experience transcendent love in a million decidedly non-transcendent moments every single day. What if we engaged our parenting as a serious spiritual practice that is an ongoing repeated activity that, performed with intentionality, can transform how we understand ourselves, others, the world around us, and our place in it? I'm going to repeat that again. What if we engaged our parenting as a serious spiritual practice? That is, as an ongoing, repeated activity that, performed with intentionality, can transform how we understand ourselves, others, the world around us, and our place in it. After all, if we go deep enough into our parenting, it can take us everywhere. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Mama Load podcast. And thank you to our guest, Rabbi Danya Rutenberg, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. You'll find links to Rabbi Rutenberg's website and how to purchase her books on the show notes page for this episode. Read more of Mama Load every day on mamalode.com. For all of us here at Mama Load, thank you for listening. We wish you all a very happy new year. We'll be back here with more podcasts in 2017.